0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am excited today to be joined by a friend who is going to introduce us to some resources that exist around mental health, uh, a thing that we should, frankly, be in conversation about all the time. Uh, Anything that helps destigmatize the way that we prioritize our mental health is good in my book. But Joel Rolampagos is a TV executive producer who worked for multiple seasons on NBC's The Biggest Loser, as well as a student debt show called Going From Broke. He executive produced alongside Ashton Kutcher when he was working on that show. Joel is also the founder of the Los Angeles mental wellness company Change Your Algorithm, which provides mental health support in person and online. He's also the host of student mental health show Breaking the Stigma, Featured through the education technology company, Chegg. I am excited because he is doing things that are changing the way that we think about, engage in, and have conversations around mental health. Please welcome Joel to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis. And I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast. It's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise. Together.
1: What's going on, Dave? Thank you
0: so much for having me. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. So I have uh, attempted to give somewhat of an overview of some of what you have done, starting in entertainment, working somewhat in and out of reality, but then ultimately finding something of a passion in this space around mental health. But rather than taking my word for it, I'd like to ask uh, anyone who comes on to, in their own words, Give our listeners just a little sense of what you believe your mission on this planet to be and why the heck you think you're here.
1: Absolutely. You know, when I first got into entertainment and I became an executive producer, I absolutely love the art of storytelling and being able to construct people's stories and do that in an entertaining way. Meanwhile, while this is happening, I'm going through my own depression, anxiety, sense of unworthiness, suicidal ideations, addiction, all of that. And nobody knew anything about it because people knew me as the happy, positive executive producer. And the reason why I did that was really because of my upbringing where I suppressed a lot of my emotions. And I was taught that boys don't cry, um, that you know, men are meant to be strong and crying is weak, all of that stuff. And that led to these uh, dark emotions, if you will. And then eventually I was able to ask for help. And I asked for help from my family who then were able to get me into treatment. And I checked myself into treatment where I absolutely fell in love with mental health. Spent $70,000 there. I was feeling much better, saved my life. And then I left it thinking, holy smokes, I don't want anyone to have to pay a single penny just so they can save their life. So my goal was to create a company that ties in media as well as mental health. And that is what Change Your Algorithm is because it is now the largest community of volunteer mental health professionals that provide their services 100% for free. And the reason why I believe that it has blown up the way that it has in the past year and a half is because I've been using media and my partners that I've worked with in past shows to get the word out there. So thank you today, Dave, for helping us get the word out there.
0: It's so cool because one, You're obviously tapping into something that you have a lot of personal experience with, and often doing work inside a space that helps try and solve a thing that maybe hadn't been solved perfectly in our own lives is how so often someone who really feels connected to purpose actually does so. But also, that the route that you took to get here would have you inside of entertainment now using some of that network, using some of that experience. To take this thing you have passion for and make it more available, more known, have a broader, bigger pat- platform that feels inviting to people. Uh, there's something serendipitous, providential that ends up coming out of your journey as well. But talk just a little bit more. Like so, change your algorithm for anyone who maybe is like even let's actually, before we get to change your algorithm, I like I am just fascinated generally by. The way that it feels like we are inching closer every day to there being less stigma around mental health, but there's still so much work to go. You always obviously had this experience. I've personally had this experience where some of what I had been taught growing up, or that masculinity as defined in society, had told me made me resistant to dipping my toe in the water of something like therapy or acknowledging that I was struggling. And then once I was able to, Everything fundamentally changed for me, and it felt like I almost had a responsibility to share with other people how meaningful my experience had been so that it might normalize their opportunity to step into it. Why, though, do you think we find ourselves with the stigma that we do? Is it just about programming from childhood or masculinity, or is there something deeper that might exist in the conversation around mental health altogether?
1: Yeah, I think that our parents, and it's not their fault, we're taught the same things. And it's just been handed down from generation to generation, no matter what your culture is, right, where it's like women or girls are supposed to be a certain way, boys or men are supposed to be a certain way, and there's nothing in between type of thing. And it's a very old school mentality. And I think that this pandemic has proven that if anything, it's okay to talk about your emotions. That you, your emotions are valid. Um, one of the biggest things that I've learned was that I'm not my thoughts. When I was going through a depression and I'd call myself those awful things, I would believe that I was those awful things. I didn't realize that or learn that when I was a kid, you know, because I grew up in a household where we didn't talk about mental health. I went to school where we learned about math, art, you know, physical education all of that stuff, but there was no mental health class. And holy moly, can you imagine You know how different the world would be if we all were taking classes about mental health and we actually understood that we have nothing to be ashamed about when it comes to our emotions? Because what happens is we can't turn to our parents, we can't turn to our schools, we're embarrassed to tell our friends. So when we keep things as shameful as depression, anxiety, addiction, you know, for people with their sexual orientation or even their religion and not feeling accepted. When you're ashamed, you feel like you are a bad person. And when you feel like you are a bad person, you feel like you deserve punishment or that bad things should happen to you. And so that's where I think it comes from.
0: It's interesting because if, I mean, I've had this conversation with Heidi quite a bit over this last year where in working through things in my own mental health journey, there was a line at one point where she was like, hey, if you got diagnosed with cancer, if you got diagnosed with almost any disease, the first thing you would do is seek out the best professional treatment. You would make sure that you were doing every single thing you could to tend to the symptoms or get a a better diagnosis to understand treatment. And yet, there is still this like worry of what people might think if we were to tend to ourselves in things that are in, in the exact same kind of vein, things that we didn't necessarily choose, that absolutely hundred percent act like disease, and that can be treated if you're willing to get help. And when you think about it in that in those terms, it like it becomes something of a you know hand wringing kind of exercise.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a great point because when someone breaks a bone, the doctor has an X-ray. When someone has cancer, the doctor has an MRI to show this. And then people go, oh my gosh, let's help this person. There is no X-ray or MRI for suicidal ideations, a sense of unworthiness, feeling really, really sad. Yes, you can get into the brain chemistry of it all, but it's not as easy as going to a doctor to get an X-ray for your broken bone. When Simone Biles put herself out of the Olympics, people were saying, well, I don't know, like, it's... I'm sure she can get through it, but if smallbells broke her bone. The doctor shows the bone and everyone's going go, oh, well, she has a broken bone. For some reason, people are so judgmental when it comes to mental health issues. And isn't that interesting? And when you compare mental health to physical health, we all go to the gym. We talk about the gym. No one judges you for going to the gym. No one's like, yikes, you're going to the gym. Is everything okay with you? No, they're like, great, awesome, cool. I should go with you. But when it comes to therapy, there is that stigma of, oh, my gosh, it's, yikes, like maybe you know, like you need some, like,
0: there's that shame element and people don't know how to
1: talk about it, you know? So it's very interesting when you compare mental health with physical health.
0: What's even maybe more interesting when I'm going to the gym now, I am bragging about it. I mean, people are probably nauseated by the amount that I am talking about working out because I do have pride for putting myself into a position to make myself stronger or challenge the way that I even think about how strong I can be. And, and in a weird way, I, especially in the last five years that I've gone through a lot of identity shift, put myself into uncomfortable places and leaving things that I'd been in, whether it was corporate America or working inside of entrepreneurship and how hard that was. My like confidence in being able to own My journey inside of therapy is something that I've finally become comfortable enough to brag, like I do when I go to the gym. That, Like, yo, I had a breakthrough with my guy, David. He helped me see something with myself and this relationship that I have to my parts. And it is it is it has become something that I have pride for. What's amazing is and I and I don't know that I appreciated this at the beginning of my own journey. As my kids are processing the aftermath of what ends up being about 18 months now of a divorce, The fact that I've been able to model how normal it is and how great I feel and the way that I am routinely committed to therapy, that they might come and have a conversation about their interest in having a talk with a therapist if they're feeling sad for some prolonged period of time or that they want to work on gratitude or they want to start journaling. It's like, oh, the model of this being normal makes it normal. In a in a house where it is normal, and it's it, the opposite ends up, of course, being true, which is why we have so much of a current to row against. Talk to me a little bit about change your algorithm. I mean, I love the the conceit of it. I love that it is a free resource, but um, talk a little bit about your decision to start it. Go back to the beginning and kind of what was that? What was that like?
1: Absolutely. So when I first went into rehab by the way i felt like i was a contestant on one of my own tv shows where i get into a house with a bunch of strangers and <laughs> basically let go of all control which was like my worst nightmare but after that first week after 17 years of drinking you know i was really really terrified and then all of a sudden i fell in love with this place because i was going to classes with mental health professionals and therapists that were talking about things that I had never heard of before. So imagine going to a university, but the university is about you. And it genuinely felt like it was about me. I didn't have to worry about bills. I didn't have to worry about work, my dogs, nothing. Like all of that was being taken care of because I was dedicating 50 days to myself and only myself. I learned things about, you know, how to actually practice gratitude. And gratitude goes beyond saying thanks, right, being actually counting your blessings versus your problems, how to set boundaries, what are toxic relationships, how 90% of our mind is the subconscious, 10% is the conscious mind, we're not our thoughts, all of these things. And it was just a wealth of knowledge. And I would write everything down in my journal. By the time I got out, 50 days later, I said, okay, I've spent $70,000 here. I now understand how to respond to my thoughts, how to respond to depression, anxiety, and addiction. And I've been happily sober ever since. But I said, there aren't people that are willing to drop that amount of money to get the help that they deserve. And so I said, well, what if I got together a bunch of therapists that are willing to volunteer their time uh, in a space where anyone can join for a monthly membership fee of zero dollars. And then the pandemic hit, the quarantine hit, and I saw that as a sign to launch Change Algorithm. And the reason why I call it Change Your Algorithm was A, I wanted to have a catchy name, and B, like all things tech, You know, we sleep to recharge, we can store a ton of data, we look for connection, but when our phones or laptops malfunction, they can reprogram themselves. That is going to change the algorithm of our lives. When I reprogram my false faulty pieces of data, which is I'm a loser, I'm unworthy, I'm never going to be loved. That's when I started to feel better about my life. And I realized that the traumas that I've had as a child, when I started to heal that, I stopped bleeding on other people that didn't cut me. Oh. Like other people can have that same upgrade, if you will, if they just upgrade their 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 negative self-beliefs. It's going to change the algorithm of their lives. And that's what we learn every day at Change of Algorithm.
0: So good. Or if if a listener in real time is like, you know what? I've never experienced therapy. How would you sell therapy to the person who still has some skepticism of it being something that may in fact benefit them?
1: Yeah, therapy is not just a person with a notepad sitting across from you in the room judging you. Therapy is all about you where you can finally vent and get everything off your chest and not have to feel ashamed about it. And that is the very first step in order to better your life, because we have these secrets, we carry these things that we're so shameful of. And when you tell another human being about all these things that you were so ashamed of and what you're going through, you don't feel so alone. And then the next step is you go, well, I told one human being, let me try telling another person, such as a friend or family member. And then now all of a sudden, you're even more not alone and they might be able to share what they're going through. And to me, vulnerability is the ultimate Wi-Fi because that's what keeps us connected. I actually don't think the world needs any more successful or rich people. I think that the world needs healers that are compassionate with each other and themselves, especially during this time.
0: Yeah, it's so, int- I, I have I've had this aha moment where my shame was a prison forever mm-hmm. and then owning it publicly by writing a book that was vulnerably going to talk about some of the stuff that I did that got in my own way or owning it inside of a coaching course or owning it in online you know, posts or whatever it might be, did two really unbelievably powerful things. Number one, it created this empathy bridge that I am so interested in with the community of saying, hey, I struggle too. And in representing my struggle, there was, of course, this universal, nearly universal connection because of how Struggle ends up being something that is just a sign of our humanity and nothing more. But also, I ended up getting so many people who, in the observation of the thing I was working through, were able, because of being a little further down the road, they had some hint, tip, trick, something that would act as a hack for the thing I was trying to solve. And so the only way that I could end up ever getting help was by changing that relationship I had with my shame into something I had pride for working to try and overcome. Yes. Right. And so, right. So like if I'm struggling with negative self-talk or had a negative coping mechanism in drinking or whatever it was, owning the struggle, one, connected me to other people. I didn't feel less less alone. But then two, it really did give me just a plethora of resources that I could now tap into that I would have otherwise not had if I kept that shame festering in the dark.
1: Absolutely. It's empowering. Right. And that, that to me is what empowerment is, is when you are grateful for something that used to be ashamed of. You know, I used to be ashamed of my addiction. I used to be ashamed of my depression. But now I'm so grateful that I went through that on top of being a TV executive producer, because now I have something else to talk about that I'm actually passionate about because it's personal for me. I would know I would have no idea what to talk about if I had not gone through that. Yeah. And I think that it's such an, I love what you said about working out how it's a regular routine because no one goes to the gym, you know, uh, once and then six months later, they're like, "Why am I not strong anymore? Or why am I not? Yeah, why am I gaining weight?" And the same thing happens to our mental health, right? It's not like you go to therapy once and then you are cured for life. It is a thing that is a part of our lifestyle, and it doesn't mean go to therapy every single day, but it does mean check in with yourself every single day because the longest relationship you're ever going to be in is with yourself. So you might as well make it a loving relationship.
0: So in my personal therapy journey. I've had a few different kinds of therapy. Each of them were specifically important and productive for something I was processing in my life in real time. Mm. When the divorce created in identity, a thing I had to try and solve, I wanted to go on a mission to really better understand myself. And so I ended up doing some work around internal family systems, relationship between self and parts. And it was just life changing, life changing. But I previously have had therapists that were more I've had a therapist that was more of a listener. So I was just getting everything out. And I've had a therapist that was more of a question asker. And I was answering things that were prompted. Is there something when it comes to your mental health work or the work inside of change your algorithm that is a specific kind of therapy specific pursuits? Or is there a variety of different things for someone who might need a specific kind of resource?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, we all love the Avengers, right? Like every superhero has their own superpower. And that's basically what change your algorithm is in terms of the therapists that we have. Again, the program is free. So we basically want people to see just the variety of therapists that are out there from hypnotherapists, psychotherapists, um, drug counselors, what have you. And we want people to check out these, it's kind of like I like window shopping, <laughs> but it's window shopping for a therapist. It's like, join these classes for free. If you resonate with one of them, get, get a hold with one of them or continue to take the
0: classes for free. That's awesome. How are you convincing people to donate their time? I mean, obviously like people want to do good in the world, but also This is a business that feels like it has a very bad business model outside of getting to feel good. (laughs) Right.
1: Absolutely.
0: So it's interesting that you say that because it
1: took a long time in the beginning of quarantine to find people that cared enough to be of service. And I think in the beginning, I found about two therapists that were willing to leave classes once a week. And what was so nice was that now it has become this community and more people have joined these classes and with these Uh, people that join these classes are therapists that hear about the program. And you'd be surprised to know that these therapists aren't just trying to get clients. It's actually the therapists that already have so many clients that they just want an outlet to speak to 30 to 50 people at a time. And it's the most efficient way to be of service in one hour. And then when we present this, you know, on the website our Instagram, what have you, I do it in a way where it's just not boring, predictable mental health, where it's the photo of the guy passed out on the subway and it says, is this you? Well, then dial this number. If this is you, like, no one's going to be like, uh. like, if you look at the website, it looks like it's for a Netflix show. Every flyer for the class looks like it's for a Netflix show. And that is like my, you know, TV producer marketing mindset, uh, that has that. And I like that the program is unpredictable. I like that the program is cool. I like that the program involves literally anyone and everyone and like that program isn't afraid to go there. And I think when people see that, they want to be a part of it.
0: It sounds like, uh, one, there's diversity when it comes to the kind of courses that are offered. I'm going to assume this is also an everyone is welcome here kind of environment where no matter what you've worked through or are working through, um, your problems, your your diagnosis, your addiction, your mental illness, it is welcome and is something that is treated. I don't want to make the assumption. I just assume like if you're going to create a community like this, you're going to have a, a community that says you are welcome here. Have a seat we have room for what you're handling and holding in a way that maybe allows us to hold just a piece of it for you.
1: Absolutely. And when I mentioned that, I, you know, when I first became sober, I was leading recovery meetings, right? We were all just talking about addiction, 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 addiction. It's like cocaine, alcohol. And I'm like, wow, it's so helpful that we're talking about this stuff. And I looked around, I'm like, where is this program but for life? (laughs) And so I want people who aren't just addicted to drugs or alcohol? Who are people who feel fine—they're just checking in to talk about their emotions, to talk about their bad day, and how that doesn't equate to having a bad life. It really is cool to make this uh,
0: normal. Yeah. Well, the 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 thing that I don't think we think about is the idea of maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to get your car's oil changed, you're going to get the tires rotated. There's a little sign that pops up that says, "Oh, but it's time for your you know this many mile checkup." But when it comes to mental health, I think often people believe that they only need to really lean into the resources that might support the mental health when they're going through a problem. And I know for me, it has been as important or more important for maintaining my equilibrium and creating strength during strong seasons to stay consistent inside the practice in the same way that you might a checkup. Agree? Disagree?
1: I totally agree. I totally agree. And you were talking about an oil change and changing tires. And I think that as people, we should also not be afraid to just stop and pause. You cannot fix the engine while the car is still running, right? And I think that in Western culture, we're so good with go, go, go. We gotta be productive. If you're not productive, that means you're not successful. It's okay to actually stop and pause, reassess your life, observe what's happening, and then move accordingly.
0: No, I know, I just I put a post up today. I had a couple days this week where I was recording my next audiobook. I just felt exhausted. I mean, just like overwhelmed. And then I made this choice, hey, I'm gonna rest. I'm gonna gonna rest for the day. And then I felt guilty about it. i like i I had a really hard time giving myself permission to not be in a producing mode. right? And then what, you know, like, so I had to trace, I've I've now got this practice in my mental health where I try to make a relationship with a feeling. And so I had to trace, like, where did this come from? And my feeling was from some programming of my childhood that associated productivity with being lovable. If I could check certain boxes, then I'd be worthy or enough. And if I didn't check enough boxes, then I might not be and when that lives against the backdrop of hustle culture, it just like it makes it so hard to think that we have this permission to rest. And yet the only thing that will keep you from burnout is indulging in rest and making you know, self-care and, and certainly mental health self-care a priority.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's why meditation is one of the hardest things for people to do, right? You go like, what's meditation? Well, you you do nothing. What? Right? It's like people's biggest fear is to just sit there, be with their emotions and literally do nothing. Just observe their thoughts and their feelings. And here we are in a culture that is so good with literally doing the opposite. Say busy, 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 that's what successful means. And that's what I like to tell people is that you're not gonna be able to, um, I mean, you're a producer, you get it. I used to think that I can executive produce my life, meaning the people, the locations, the circumstances that happened to me. And when I couldn't control that, it would drive me nuts. And when a relationship would fail, I would go, wow, that must mean I'm a failure. But now I realize while I can't executive produce the things around me and the circumstances that happen to me, I can actually produce how I respond to them and what my belief is going to be about them. One of the things that we talk about is rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is our emotions aren't caused by the activating events in our lives. Our emotions are caused by our beliefs about the activating events in our lives. so I love being able to sit down, not do anything and go, okay, what is my belief about this bad day? What is my belief about having to be productive? What is my belief about this relationship that isn't going well? you know because when you have a better understanding of that, then you're going to know how to respond if you even need to respond at all
0: Yeah, I mean my my work has really been in appreciating in the same way that you said it, that I am, I'm not my thoughts. I'm the observer of my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. I'm super welcome as self to make a relationship with and ask them why they've presented what role they believe themselves to be playing, but separating myself from them and trying to get to the bottom of the truth, the real truth, not what the voice is saying, the real truth, not what the feeling is emoting that ends up being the secret to all of it. And it doesn't, by the way, make it easy. I mean, shoot, I just recently in the community was going through this week where I was talking about how important stillness is. And people don't necessarily love spending time by themselves because sitting alone in your thoughts isn't always the easiest work. Right, And yet, if we can normalize sitting and having somewhat of a disconnected conversation with what that thought is or isn't when it comes to what's real or not, what's true or not. We give ourselves the the possibility of actually holding on to our truth in a way that doesn't just accept that every feeling or every thought is who we are, what we actually should believe.
1: I couldn't agree more. Well said.
0: Yeah. So you now have this as what obviously is a super passion, but are you still working in television and doing the change your algorithm work?
1: I am. Yes. So right now I'm an executive producer for LeBron James's company, Spring Hill. And the last show that we did was about stop Asian hate for YouTube originals. And the next one that we're doing um, is going to be about what we can do to fight against anti-Semitism. So a lot of the shows that I have been working on are they had. They do with mental health. They do with racial justice, social justice, and they continue to be inspirational and motivational. I have a show airing on ABC uh, this Thanksgiving, and it has to do has to do with magic. I can't give it away too much, but it has to do with the most magical moments in our lives, and it is definitely a tearjerker.
0: Oh, that's amazing! All right, so re- real quick, let's rewind. Was Recipe for Change the show about Asian hate? Yep. We t- t- just talk a little bit about it. I, this is something that I think is important for the audience. If people weren't familiar with what ended up being a rash of unbelievable and unnecessary violence that was just randomly seemingly perpetrating the Asian and, and Pacific uh, Islander yeah. community. Um, talk just a little bit about what the show was and what the hoped for outcome of creating it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, first, as you said, the just the news has been shocking, knowing that there's over 6,600 anti-Asian attacks in one year alone. And you hear about these people attacking, you know, the elderly from the Asian community, the people that are not going to fight back cannot fight at all. Can, you know, can barely move even. And those are the people that are being attacked or a majority of. And so we wanted to put a show together that had Asian celebrities, activists, influencers, chefs, politicians, sitting in our dinner tables because food is what's always going to unite us and it was spread across three dinner tables and we had and Minaj we had Jay Shetty, Olivia Munn, Simu Liu, who's in the next Marvel movie, um, Michelle Kwan, Lisa Ling, the list goes on and on and on and sees amazing AAPI celebrities that talk about the heavy topics such as internalized racism, being able to grow up and actually not liking who you are and what that would mm. be like for these celebrities and these are answers that you don't hear about on C CNN or whatnot. Like it was a very personal conversation at a dinner table. And we also involved everyday people. So we would do a, a man on the street type of segment where we interviewed uh, people who were Asian as well as their allies. And we talked about what it takes to be a true ally for the Asian community. And it was nice to see such an amazing response from the viewers, including Hillary Clinton tweeted about it, which made me really excited about. It. And then now we're doing an episode about the Jewish community. So we're definitely going to continue this, this show to support all uh, oppressed communities and marginalized communities because there's so many that deserve that equality.
0: And just even attention for the issue so that if you end up being someone who is outside the community, you might become a little more in the, in, in just to, to be able to acknowledge the truth of what is happening walk a day in the shoes of someone who may inside of that community feel oppressed or scared or both how you might be able to use your voice in some way to be an advocate or ally on behalf of um, stopping the hate. Uh, Gosh, what an important thing it is. It is actually just like in real time, donning. I mean, part of what I love about change your algorithm, the fact that it exists or was created when it was I mean, my buddy John Acuff and I were just talking last week about this reality that we are all going through our first global pandemic, right? So um, it, yep, feels crazy and overwhelming. And also, we don't give ourselves any grace that we have no experience whatsoever in going through a pandemic because it is everyone's first. But we're also, to the point of this conversation and everything that's been happening in the last two years, In the midst of a real overdue racial reckoning and a conversation about race and racism in America that ends up producing heaviness, but also a lot that can bleed into the mental health space. There is as much or more division that there's ever been in the political sphere and the news sphere. And so if there were a time for a mental health resource to exist, man, this is as good or better a time than ever. So um, kudos to you, man, for doing the work and for being a resource that is just so, so needed in uh, this crazy world that we're living in right now.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for for having me. And, you know, it really is so meaningful to be able to get messages and emails from people that say that the program is changing their life, even saving their lives, because you were talking about pandemics, right? The United Nations has already reported that the next pandemic is going to be a mental health pandemic. And I believe personally that we're already in that mental health pandemic because of what's going on with hate, because of what's going on with the virus. And I think that the one thing that we can have the vaccine to is taking care of our mental health right here and right now. That's not something that we have to to wait for you know, yeah. or have to get FDA approved <laughs> because we can literally just uh, tap into our emotions, practice that self-care, self-love, seek out therapy, which as we all know comes in a form of free support
0: through change your algorithm. So thank you so much for having me. Oh man, I appreciate it. If you as a listener have ever been somewhat curious, there's a little voice inside you that said, huh, I wonder if therapy's for me and had cost, as a barrier to entry, well, that now has gone away. You are super normal if you are experiencing struggle in this season because that struggle, again, is a reflection of your humanity. You wouldn't be human if you weren't feeling something of overwhelm with all the things that are happening and as a, an outlet, as a resource, as community. Um, this is an awesome thing that I'd encourage people to check out if for no other reason than to normalize some of what you're going through and find some connection in the shared experience of what it means to process all the things that we're trying to process at one time. Joel, if someone is uh, interested in following you, wants to get more information on change your algorithm, where do we send people in the interweb space to, uh, to learn more? Sure.
1: Well, for me, my Instagram is at Joel Rolampigos and I post a lot of mental health videos. I actually don't use my social media about entertainment. I literally use it to talk about mental health. And then more importantly, the website for Change Your Algorithm is changealgorithm.com. So that's changealgorithm.com. And then our Instagram for that is at change algorithm. So we highly recommend for people to sign up for the newsletter because it's going to be just once a week. It's not those annoying newsletters that pop up every other day saying, hey, do you want to extend your warranty? And we basically say what the free
0: classes are for the week. And if people want to join, great. If not, tune in for the next week. Uh, I love it. All right. On the show, every week, we end with the same question, asking uh, our guests to share a single key takeaway with the audience, a question, a piece of advice. What would you, if you only had one thing that you could say, leave with our listeners today?
1: Replace judgment with compassion. That applies to yourself and towards others. If we all just replace judgment with compassion, this would be a much, much better
0: world. Dang it. That is a good word. I am here for some (laughs) compassion this week. Joel, thank you for coming on the show, brother. I appreciate you continue to do this good work. I know you are blessing many people and uh, I appreciate the fact that I've got to know you here today. Look forward to getting to know you better over time. It's an honor, Dave. Thank you so much. Right on. All right. Listener, if you've taken anything away from this or maybe more importantly, know of someone who could benefit in destigmatizing just a bit mental health as an important priority in their life. I would encourage you to take a screenshot of the show on the device that you're listening to tag myself and Joel, let us know something that you got from it. But again, share this with someone who you think might benefit from the invitation for some free therapy. And between now and next week, let's change the way that we are thinking, change that algorithm, but also Let's swap out judgment for compassion. We will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of the Hollis Company.